0: Welcome back to the show. This is episode number 106. We have a jam-packed show today. It's probably going to be a little bit of a longer one. Uh, So buckle in and enjoy the ride today. And before we get into the show, I just wanted to remind you guys that at Macro Zinc, we provide fully customized one-on-one nutrition coaching and online personal training that has changed the lives of over 15,000 people and counting. I think it's actually 16 or 17,000 people now. We do offer a two-week free trial for our nutrition coaching and you can get started risk-free today. So just go to macrozinc.net slash services and sign up. Let's get into the show. On today's episode of the show, we're going to start out by talking about why diets work until they don't, How in business, sometimes you really just have to play a completely different game. And we're going to talk about your mind as a muscle. And I'm going to give you guys a little bit of insight to how my brain works and how I try to deal with it and train it as a muscle. Let's get into the first section of the show. For our Nutrition Insight today, we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of why diets work until they don't, and really how all diets work until at some point they don't. And the reason for that is based on some key principles, and then how you can make diets either work again or continue to work for an extended period of time. So there's kind of four areas I want to talk about today. This is going to be a little bit longer segment on the nutrition side, um, just because this is pulled from a talk that I gave last year at one of our corporate wellness events. Uh, so shameless plug for Macros Inc. Corporate Wellness. If you or a business that you know, own, or love would like to work with us on corporate wellness, just reach out brad.deter at Net, and we'll figure out a way to provide corporate wellness solutions to you and your business. All right. Shameless plug over. Let's get into it. Four main areas I want to talk about on this topic today. One, the landscape of diets. Two, the principles of major diets. Three, why diets stop working. And four, how to get diets working again. And there is going to be a link in this in the show notes to this section um, with the slides that went with this, so there's some visuals you guys can see too. So when we think about it, there's, there's more categories in this, but in my mind, there's kind of six major categories of popular diets. There's food group restriction diets. Um, there are macronutrient restriction diets. There's macronutrient ratio focused diets. There's what we call positive food selection. There's habit-based diets, and there's meal replacement diets. So when I talk about food group restriction diets, that would be things like vegetarian diets where you eliminate all meat. Um, there would be the carnivore diet where you eliminate like all fruits, vegetables, and grains. Those would be examples of food group restriction diets. Um, then you have macronutrient restriction diets, which would be like low-fat diets, keto diets, um any of those type of diets that would be macronutrient restriction uh, macronutrient ratio would be things like zone um, that's like the 30 40 40 or 30 30 40 then you have things what i call positive food selections which is instead of negatively like removing diet or foods from your diet you only Consume specific foods in that diet. Like you add them to your diet, and those are the things that you consume. Um, so, like a very popular example of this recently has been the cert food diet, which I want to do a, I actually want to go through the book and do like a breakdown of that book. And the reason I want to do that is the, the claims made in that book around the cert food diet, and I'm getting a little off track, is around how certain foods turn on specific genes, these sirtuin genes. And my dissertation focus was actually is on one of the main sirtuin genes. And so I actually did molecular work on how food and exercise affect those genes. So I have a pretty good insight into how that actually works. Um, then we have habit-based diets. So this is more of like the, hey, make sure you eat a palm of protein and you eat X, Y, and Z, or you know you, you don't eat after 9 p.m. or things like that. Those are habit-based diets. Then you have meal replacement diets. This is like your herbal life meal replacement shakes, your Nutrisystem, your Slim Fast—all these things that like really replace food with other things, whether it's a drink or it's other meal options. Um, so, in my mind, those are kind of the landscape of diets. Now, when you think about dieting or diet slash changing dietary pattern in general. In my mind, there's five major aspects or principles of diets um, that we should consider. So the first is habit change. Anytime you engage in a new diet, you're changing your habits and often your environmental cues, right? You're removing food from the house, you're eating at different places, you're sitting down at dinner with different foods on the table, etc. And you're changing your habits. Now, this often immediately leads to reductions in calorie intake, right? If you're massively changing your habits and you're changing your food environments, the research has shown when you do either of those, your overall calorie intake in a day goes down. The second major dietary principle is food restriction. Generally, there's some form of food restriction, right? You're either doing you know, food group restriction, macronutrient restriction, your habits are restricting food, etc. So many diets lead to restriction of one or more foods and or food slash nutrient groups. This by itself often leads to a reduction in calorie intake. The next major diet principle is reduced palatability, which means the enjoyment you get from food is often less. Um, if you think about it, if you switch from a highly processed diet to you know any of the less processed food diets, you follow a paleo diet, Whole30 Um the South Beach diet, Mediterranean diet, any of those. I mean, the food can still taste good, but it's less palatable. So you actually consume less food overall. Um, hunger management is the next principle. A lot of major diets, one of the principles that they you know, kind of promote, not directly, and they don't talk about it, but they promote higher satiety foods, including more fibrous veggies, higher protein intakes. Um, and a lot of foods that are higher in satiety, so this often leads to, you know, a reduction in calorie intake. And then the last piece is kind of calorie restriction. And then from a dietary perspective, dietary or uh, diets, excuse me, that result in weight loss, they all do so by creating a calorie deficit. And that this can be achieved by any combination of these kind of core principles: habit change, food restriction, reduced palatability, and hunger management. So let's kind of walk through I'll take two examples of major diets and I'll kind of walk through the habit change, food restriction, reduce palatability and hunger management. So habit change. Um, let's talk about the ketogenic diet just cuz it's been very popular and we still get a ton of questions in our group about it. When you adopt a ketogenic diet, it's often a very large departure from normal eating behaviors for most people, right? They generally eliminate an entire food group. They basically eliminate carbs as much as possible. So they eliminate all breads, pastas, rices, uh, pastries, etc. So that's a massive departure. That's huge habit change. And that definitely leads to reduction in calorie intake. And that's been studied. Um, Food restriction, right? Ketogenic diets, not only do they cause massive habit change, but they substantially reduce an entire macronutrient category to very minimal levels. Um, Reduce palatability. Ketogenic diets can often make diets less palatable by limiting textures and nutrients. And that's been studied as well. And then the last piece is hunger management, right? Ketogenic diets do promote higher protein intake and that can increase satiety. And that's one of the, the aspects of how most ketogenic diets actually work. And this has been studied pretty extensively is they generally tend to increase protein intake and that increases satiety and that has people have spontaneous calorie restriction and then they lose weight. And so in every research study that's been conducted, Ketogenic diets that lead to weight loss do so from calorie restriction whether it's intentional or unintentional from adopting the diets due to habit change food restriction reduced palatability and hunger management um and so the same thing would apply like if we look at you know intermittent fasting right its effect is very similar but some of the categories are weighted slightly differently right so if we look at the habit change part of intermittent fasting Reducing from three meals a day to one meal a day is a huge departure from normal eating behavior. So you're going to eat less food. Um, food restriction, not f- foods aren't really restricted in that diet. So that doesn't have as m- much of a- an effect. Um, but the reduced feeding windows will lead to food restriction because you can't eat as much food in one city. Reduced palatability, no real effect there. Um, hunger management though, there is a big effect, right? When you adopt intermittent fasting, you learn to go long periods without eating and you start to learn to better manage your hunger cues and your hunger signals. And that actually helps you in the long run, um, because you can learn to, to really handle periods without eating. And that actually makes a big difference as you kind of go through your entire kind of dieting life, so to speak of, Hey, there's times where you're going to be hungry when you're trying to lose weight. And if you can learn to manage that, that's a great tool to have uh, in your tool belt. So that's just a quick example of two diets and how these major principles kind of affect it. So the interesting thing is, we know that this is really the case. When you look at you know, the literature, especially... I mean, we did a ton of research on diets and weight loss between really the mid-80s and... I mean... Until now, right? The last major study that was published on this was twenty twenty one so last year. So basically, if you look at any of the diets, any major diet, they all show weight loss, and they all show similar amounts of weight loss, and they all show similar time frames for weight loss. They also show you know similar um like rebound rates, right? So all of them work the same for weight loss. Virtually all of them work the same for like long-term weight loss. And it really comes down to like a few core principles. And I want to talk about why that is and why they fail um, over time. So the first reason is adherence. The single biggest reason that diets fail is lack of adherence over time. Two, inaccuracies as humans, we are very poor estimators and we often bias ourselves in the wrong direction. And I'll talk about that here in a minute. And then three, the failure to adapt. So I want to talk about um, each of these individually. So let's talk about the adherence piece. If you look at... It doesn't matter. Pick a diet. Pick Adkins, Zone, Weight Watchers, vegan diets, keto diets, paleo diets, uh, Whole30, um, whatever you want to pick. By about six months you have about 50% adherence rates. Some are 55, some are 45, some are 60, some are 40. But roughly across the board, every single diet has about a 50% adherence time by about six months, by about 12 months, you're at about 30%. And so basically, you have this big survivorship bias of like, hey, if 30 out of 100 people have results with Weight Watchers a year down the road, then two years down the road, it's down to 20%. You still have this massive survivorship bias. But adherence is basically the same across all diets. Um, the second one is you know, inaccuracies. So when you look at human behavior, and we kind of summarize the scientific literature, we underestimate our calorie intake by a pretty substantial margin. I mean, it's about 40%. Depending on the study, it's 20 to 50% is kind of where we see those ranges, depending on which study you read. But we underestimate how many calories we consume by about 20 to 50%. So I'll just say 35%, 40% is the average. What's very interesting about that is that's even in studies where people are trying to report their food, not just like, oh, hey, what'd you eat yesterday? It's like, no, track your food and report it. Tell me what you ate. And then we have ways of like actually measuring what people consume and it's a pretty big difference. We also drastically overestimate how many calories we expend in a day and this is also a pretty substantial amount. It's like 30-40%. So if you kind of do the rough math and this is just a estimate an estimate an estimate that I did from looking at some of the literature is the self-report calorie balance is most people think they're in about a 500 calorie a day deficit. In reality, if you do the math on it, people are in a several hundred um, calories a day surplus. And so that actually makes a big difference, right? This is why people say, hey, I'm eating 1,200 calories a day and I'm gaining weight. It's like, well, you're probably not eating 1,200 calories a day. You're probably not expending 2,000 calories a day. And you're probably actually in a calorie surplus. You just aren't fully aware of that. Um, and that's not saying like people lie, it's just we're just very, very bad estimators whether it's like a psychological bias we have, whether we're just really bad at it because we're terrible at estimating, etc. We just are not great estimators and we're very inaccurate unless we have really good tools to track ourselves. And then the last thing is we often fail to adapt. And this is, I think I made a quote either on the podcast or in the Facebook group recently is, everything works, nothing works forever. And so what we need to realize is Let's say you're somebody who's, you know, 200 pounds, it's their first time dieting, they go on some sort of weight loss program, they lose 30, 40 pounds, they get there, and then they think, "Oh hey, what I was doing, I should just keep doing, and then if I ever need to lose weight again, I'll just do that same plan again." Turns out, the math of weight loss changes substantially after you've lost weight. How you sustain that weight loss, how you lose that weight again, it all changes quite a bit. And so you really have to think through that. So a little, a little caveat and some context on that last piece is you have to understand the changing context. Diets are always within the context of your life, right? And that context changes and it needs to be considered. Are you a 25-year-old athlete? Are you a 35-year-old executive? Are you a 40-year-old mom with four kids who stays at home? Are you a you know, 65-year-old lawyer who is just about to retire and is now going to live on the golf course. Like, those are all things you have to consider. Um, then, you know, the last... Uh, not the last thing. Another thing is, think back to when you started a diet and how you built new habits. Have you sunk back into bad habits? Or have you sunk into new bad habits? Right, One of the things I tell my clients a lot, well, I don't really have any clients anymore, but I used to tell my clients a lot, is novel stimuli becomes non-novel stimuli very quickly. Right, So we kind of become accustomed to a new norm, and it's no longer new, and we slip back on habits. And as goals change, your diet needs to change, or you're now likely following a diet for an old goal that doesn't match up with a new goal. So how do we get diets working again? There's really three ways, three major concepts to consider. One, take an honest assessment of current behaviors. Two, make a change. Making a change can often reset habits and reset adherence. Three, adapt the plan so you make sure your plan fits your newest addition. So one is, and this sounds super simple, but it's a tool that we use a lot with our clients, especially when they're new and they're really struggling is people who, let's say, they're reporting that they're following the plan, they're on top of it every day, but they're still not making progress. And we find out, hey, they've been measuring in terms of cups and volumes instead of weight for the first four to six weeks. So we'll have them switch up and we'll say, hey, I want you to actually weigh everything for a couple weeks. And they'll be like, well, that's weird. I feel like it wouldn't be that different. And it turns out if you actually look at like... Rough cup measurements versus food food weight you can that'll add up at each meal like twenty, thirty, forty grams of food at a time and over the course of a day it can be three, four five six hundred calories depending on what you're eating so that's the difference between losing weight and not losing weight. Um, the other one is changing environments or stimuli can often reset adherence so one of the things that we've explored and that I've done a lot with clients is we understand the kind of fundamental principles of weight loss and how they work. And we know what things actually lead to results and what don't. And that a lot of diets are the same, so it doesn't really matter. And you don't have to go low carb, et cetera. But one of the things that's really interesting is every time you make a pretty major adjustment to a client's plan, whether it's you change their macros, you change the the concept of the diet, like, hey, we're actually going to try low carb for a while. Or hey, we're going to try low fat for a while. Or hey, we're going to move to vegan for a while. it doesn't have to be that extreme, but anytime you make a change, you you reset the dietary adherence clock. So I have a graph in this um, talk, and it'll be available in the show notes. Is every time you like, let's say you're at six months, you notice your adherence is dropping. Make a massive change, right? Be like, "Hey, we're going to change up what we're doing right now because we've hit a plateau." And it the magic is not in the exact change you're making. The magic is in your you're making an adjustment. So you're creating novel stimuli and you're resetting the behavior patterns. Um, And so those are things that you can do. So that is the nutrition insight for today. Why diets work until they don't. Some strategies to get them to work when they've stopped working. We'll take a very quick break. I got to get some water and then we're going to jump into the business insight. All right. Business Insight Time. So today is the title of this section I put in my show notes. I call them show notes. It's literally me just throwing my ideas on paper slash on a Google Doc before we get started so I don't forget anything. Um, But the title of this section is Play a Different Game. And so I want to explore this idea. I don't have all my thoughts completely worked out. So we're going to work this out together live a little bit. Um, But I want to start with a quote. And then I want to talk about my perspective on that quote. So there's a very famous quote that has been attributed to Henry Ford. Maybe, or maybe he didn't actually say it, but the quote is if I had asked people what they had wanted, they would have said faster horses. So a lot of times people, especially in the business world, they'll say this all the time. And they'll say, you know, customers can easily describe a problem they're having, in this case, wanting to get somewhere faster, but not the best solution, right? Like, hey, people don't think outside the box. Here's my perspective on this based on the way that I'm thinking about this problem currently. The other way of viewing it really is that there are expectations that people assume that you should follow to be successful, but that doesn't mean it's the best way to do it. And so the reason I'm thinking about this is I've spent a lot of time in the last year. I mean, MacroZinc has grown quite a bit. Um, you know, When we're starting to get into the medium size to large size business category. And so the game that we're playing is a little bit different than the game we were playing two to three years ago. And so as kind of one of the owners and the chief operating officer, my one of my jobs is to really understand that game, right? How we acquire clients, how the financials of a company our size work, um, you know, how we fit into the larger financial game, microeconomics, macroeconomics. These are all things that I have to start like trying to think about. Um and so as I've been doing this, I've been reading and trying to understand the market as a whole, how our industry works, and how just the business world works at that scale. And so there's been some very interesting things that I've learned. One is, in the startup, and I would still consider MacroZinc, I mean, we're, we're sort of a startup, but we're sort of not, is... Companies of our size at our growth rate often go after um, funding, whether it's private equity, venture capital, they raise debt um, whatever and what's interesting about that space is the way that it currently works is growth is the single most important metric, and top line revenue is the single most important metric so those those two things okay, so maybe they're not both the single most important, but those two together are the most valuable metrics you can have, and what's very interesting is, let's say you take a company that's doing 10 million dollars a year and you go to raise money, if you have a business that is net negative, so it's burning cash every month and you've I don't know the mechanics of how that works, how you keep a business running, when your cash flow negative, is interesting to me. Um, but let's say that's the case and you go to raise money and you've grown let's say you know you've doubled your company size every year your valuation depending on your industry will be higher in that case than if you were a cash flow positive business so if you're a debt laden cash negative fast growing company generally speaking you will or you're likely to find a higher valuation than if you have the same revenue, the same growth rate, and your cash flow positive. And it's, it's very interesting that, that it works that way. Because basically, the mechanics of how that happens is, as soon as you're cash flow positive, there's a number we call your earnings before um, interest, taxes, distributions, and amortization. They call it EBITDA. But that metric Starts to be factored into your valuation. So let's say you would have gotten a 10x on your gross revenue, but the, the standard EBITDA multiple is, let's say, 30x. So let's say you're, you're slightly cash flow positive, so it's, but it's a small amount. And so your EBITDA is small, but you are cash positive. You're not you know, c- using debt to cover your expenses. That EBITDA number will be way outside of what's normal. So your valuation actually gets hit which is very interesting to me. And so with the mechanics of that in play, you start to understand why a lot of companies just spend massive amounts of money acquiring clients. And they don't really care about their profitability because their plan is like, "Hey, I'm going to run a million dollars net negative this year. I'm just going to use a credit line or debt to pay for all these customers I'm going to acquire. But then... I'm gonna raise money at twice what my value was last year. So let's say my value last year was $40 million. Now I'm gonna raise another $10 million in cash at an $80 million valuation. I'll use a million of that to pay off my debt and I'll have $9 million that I can go spend this year to double in size again and I'll keep playing this game. So that's very interesting, right? Now, the problem with that is that works until you run out of runway or that works until you can't grow anymore. Or that works until the VC market dries up and interest rates have gotten too high and you can't actually raise any money. And then your company's fundamentals and financials are in such a bad spot that the business either closes or you have to do a complete debt restructuring and it can just completely change the whole company. The other way to do it is you don't care so much about chasing the valuation and you build the core business around a scalable model that actually makes more money as it gets bigger. So that's why I talk about like, just because the game's played a certain way doesn't mean you have to play it. And so here's one of the things. Um, just an example. Very recently, is there's a company called BetterHelp, and they basically are they do the equivalent sort of of what we do at Macros Inc. for kind of online um, mental health therapy counseling. And from from some inside information with them is they've grown pretty massively, right? They're a they're a massive online company. Um, they were acquired, I think, in twenty fifteen by a private equity firm, I believe, or a competitor, and now they've scaled. But what's interesting is they're definitely following this VC route because what they did is they were direct consumer, but they realized the fastest way to scale, like very quickly and get a lot more clients is to go after large corporate partnerships, right? Like, hey, if it takes me... If I can get a 1,000 clients in a month, direct consumer through ads and email marketing, etc. That's great. But if I can... I realize B2B is a longer sales cycle. But let's say I build a sales team, and I can go after these clients. And all of a sudden, they start stacking up. And now I land three corporate clients in a month. And each of those corporate clients has 500 people. Okay. Well, now I've added 1,500 people in a month. And then the next month, I have four. And it's like, okay, now now I really get the ball rolling. But what they ran into is they realized it's very hard to sell businesses on covering all the costs for their people. So what they ended up doing was they said, Hey, we can afford to just spend a huge amount of money and we don't care about our profitability. We'll lose a lot of money, so we will give away months of free, like online counseling. So we'll give our product away for free at scale. So if we go to an organization that's 500 people and the average cost is $200 a month, right? How much is that? That is, that's, gosh, 500 times 200. That's $100,000. I'm going to give away $100,000 of product to each company away for free just to hope that maybe 20% of their clients stick around for more months that they end up paying for and so that's the type of model that a lot of these people are using and so it's a very interesting like just game to be in in that industry and look at how people are doing things and think okay how do we compete in that space as we get to that level of scale but also not deviate from the core idea that like we're never going to be chasing that game. How do we build a solid company with solid like, financial fundamentals and scale it as it needs to scale without getting into that trap? Um, so that's just this idea of like, hey, you can play a different game if you understand the game you're in and that there are, there are ways to get to where you want to go without trying to play the same game that everybody else is. So that's the business insight for today. So we'll take one more quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about what am I learning today. Are what am I learning today segment? So let me just plant my flag first here because this may end up being controversial, even though it shouldn't be. I'm not a neuroscientist. I don't do neuropsychology research. I'm not a mental health expert. Um, I'm not a sports psychologist motivation expert. I'm none of those things, but I just want to talk a little bit about my own brain state and my own experience um, and just some of the things that I've seen amongst my clients in my career. And I want to talk about this idea of. Your mind is a muscle. So let me talk about just my own personal experience a little bit and talk about um, this concept of mind as muscle. So I think about my mental state in a given day, week, month, year, and the narratives that come up in my head. Right. And the things that my brain tells myself. And I don't say the things that I tell myself, it's the things that my brain comes up with and tells me that I don't have any control over. Right. If I think about, like, if I really stop and pay attention to the thoughts that come up in my brain, like, I don't really have a choice what pops up in the short term. And so there's a lot of times where, like, I get thoughts that are very negative. Right. Like, I can't tell you how many times in a given day, week, or month, like I think, man, running a business is so hard. I just want to quit. I want to go do something else that's way less stressful. Right? That idea pops up in my head all the time. Um, you know, something will happen where like I'll have a very weird perspective that just pops up into my brain on a situation in a relationship, whether it's my wife, my family, etc. Like somebody does something. That in my mind, I get this like, oh my God, they're thinking about this way and they don't love me. And yeah, like all these thoughts just like pop up into your brain. And when I was younger, I would kind of let those thoughts really like take root and take hold and control a lot of my emotions, my responses, how I would think about the world, uh, you know, what my day felt like and looked like. And they would really have a lot of control over that. And then one day I realized, like, one, I don't have control over where these thoughts come from. Two, these thoughts may not actually be reflective of reality, right? Like, my brain just made them up. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. And then the third one is these thoughts are always very fleeting. And so if I can control and if I can understand that and I can kind of control my thought process, my behaviors and my responses to those thoughts. I can probably improve how I respond to those things over time. And then if I improve how I respond to them, I can probably train my brain to recognize what's going on and compartmentalize it. So I think um I'll just give an example. Like yesterday, um I had something happen and I had these like pretty negative emotions and thoughts about a situation in my life. And I was walking my dogs and I was thinking about it. And I was like, hey, you know what? Like, When I really think about this, that's not probably actually reality. And so I spent a few minutes on the walk like really flipping that perspective in my mind. And by the end of it, I was like, oh yeah, this is something you shouldn't even worry about and shouldn't really take any energy out of your day. And so this is one of the things that I try to tell people, especially when I was working with clients, is like, look... A lot of this, like, health fitness journey is going to be tough. You're going to have a lot of negative self emotions at times. You're going to have a lot of thoughts where you're like, this sucks. I don't want to do this. You're going to have a lot of thoughts where it's like, God, this is pointless. I'm going to have to do this the rest of my life. Like, you're just going to have a lot of negative thoughts and emotions as you go on. But the more you can compartmentalize, handle those, realize they're fleeting, deal with them appropriately, you start to train your mind and your emotions to, like, These things happen. You know, like I'm I've gotta get used to it. I'm gonna be able to handle it. And then what's very comforting about that is in the future, you know when something like this happens again, or when you have an experience that isn't great, you're gonna be capable of handling it in an appropriate way. So this is kind of why I think of your mind as a muscle is you can kind of train yourself to learn how to respond to these things. You can't always control what comes up in your mind, but you can control how your self responds to it, at least to maybe not the full degree, but to a large degree. So that's what I'm learning today. That's the message I want to talk to you guys about. That's it for the show today. I think this may be one of the longest ones on record, but it was a great show. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I'm Dr. Brad. I'm out of here. I will see you guys later.